Amen. Well, we're going to wrap up a series we have called Improving Your Serve. And obviously, we're not talking about tennis. We're talking about serving the Lord. And this series is intended to make us all think about what we're doing for the Lord and jack it up a little bit. Work harder. Do things better. Improve the way that you're serving God. And you know, it's always kind of a... This sounds funny, but for a preacher, it's kind of sad to come to the end of a series. There's, I mean, obviously, there's a practical way because I love series because I know what I'm preaching over the next few weeks. I don't have to decide. You know, have you ever been in that dilemma, uh, Vito? You're like, what am I going to preach the next week? Um, so I like series that way. But, you know, you feel, I feel like God uh, really helped us through this series. He certainly spoke to me. I hope He spoke to you. Uh, and uh, I've enjoyed preaching it. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. But more importantly, I hope that you will apply what it says. Now... For a church to be what it ought ought to be, it takes two levels of servants in the church. You ready? Everybody serves. I serve. It takes two levels of servants for a church to be what it ought to be. It takes leadership, and then it takes workers. On Wednesday nights, we've been praying, God, send us more workers. Gail and I talk about all the time, man, I mean, send us more leaders. Gail and I talk about it all the time. Oh, we need more leaders. We need more leaders. We need more leaders. I remember years ago, a a great uh, minister of education brought out a principle, and he called it the pyramid principle of how a church grows. A church will only grow as high as the width of the pyramid. The pyramid, the bottom, represents leadership. And uh, the church will only grow as tall as your leadership base. And we are in a position at a church where we've got a lot of workers, but we need more leadership. And so continue to pray with us about that, because the bigger leadership base we get, then we are setting the stage or the infrastructure, so to speak, to, for us to grow. Remember, God is not... Growing a church is not an option. Jesus says, go and make disciples. That's the greatest command that God gave to the church. He, he said, go, grow the church. The Apostle Paul was talking to the Corinthians. He said, I planted the church. Apollos watered it, but God caused the growth. The growth. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Build my church. He didn't say, well, I will build my church everywhere else except Franklin, Arkansas at Franklin Baptist Church. We need to be concerned about the health of this church, which is good, but we need to also be concerned and for the growth of this church. Uh, let me put it this way. Why we need more leadership and why both leadership and workers need to try to improve the way that they're do- doing things. Have you ever heard the expression, chiefs and Indians? Okay, 
In this context, I'm talking about chiefs or leaders. Indians are your workers that make it happen. And in this church, we got a lot of workers. Thank God for that. Everybody's serving somewhere as far as our active uh, adult leadership. <clears throat> Probably 95% of our people in here are workers. But we need, we don't, we've got enough Indians, we need some more chiefs, amen? <laughs> we need people that can help lead and serve in that capacity and jack up our ministry, so to speak, and improve the way that we're doing things. We should never be content with where we are. The Apostle Paul said, I'm, you know, forgetting those things behind, he said, I'm not what... I ought to be, but I keep pressing toward everything God wants me to be. And Paul said that as a leader, but I believe that applies to our church. Franklin Baptist Church isn't all it should be, but we should always be striving to be what God intended us to be. <clears throat> it's interesting, when you look at the Scriptures, you can clearly see what I'm talking about in the church. Listen to this. He gave leadership to the church. He says, God, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, God sent apostles and prophets and pastors and leaders to do what? To equip the saints to do the work of the church. You got it? And it takes both. Now, I'm going to sh uh, show you uh, again as we wrap this up. God has four purposes for your life, for everybody here. That is that you be saved. Most of us here are. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And then He wants you to be sanctified, growing to be more like Him after you get saved. And it needs to take place immediately. You don't need to say, teenagers, well, I'll get sanctified when I get older. <laughs> That's not the way you do it. Uh, and then you are to share Jesus, to share Jesus with other people. And then we said, finally, you need to be involved in serving the church somewhere. Okay? Now let me give you two wonderful quotes. One of them is a scripture. Look what God said right here in, Ephes uh, excuse me, in Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship. That means God fashioned us together with our talents and our gifts and our personalities. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Can I say it another way? God made us what we are so we can serve Him. That's what it says. God made us the way we are so we can serve Him. Here's another great quote, because some of you are thinking, well, I just can't teach, I can't do all these big things in the church, I can just do a little thing. Well, listen to this, according to this series... <laughs> Napoleon Hill said that. I have no idea who he is, but he made a great statement right here. If you cannot do great things, do small things in a great way. Isn't that great? So whatever you're doing in this church, hey, listen, it's time to get more serious about it. It's time to raise it up to another level of your faithfulness and what you do and do things with excellence. The Bible says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There's a great preacher in, uh, in Kentucky, and he said, he's, um, he said this, 
If it bears His name, it's worth our best. You know, a lot of you, listen, either in work or whatever you do at home or whatever club you belong to or whatever you do, you do your best. And God said, listen, don't bring me the lame sheep and the spotted sheep. Bring me your best. All right, so let's talk about where we've been, how to improve your serve. We said there's seven factors. The calling factor, you've got to ask God to lead you where He wants you to serve. Then the equipping factor. That's what I'm doing in my sermons. That's what you'll be equipped with anytime you're under the Word of God. And that's what I'm trying to do for you is I'm trying to help you uh, serve, call you out, ask you to do something. I'll help train you in whatever that is. I won't leave you hanging. Um, so there's the equip, equipping factor. Then the number three, there's the blessing factor. Because God wants to use you as a blessing to other people. Make me a channel of blessing. Do you know if you are not serving, if you're not being all God called you to be, you are robbing the church of blessings. And you're robbing yourself of blessing. Then we said the tribulation factor. I'm glad the Lord's honest. All this comes out of Matthew chapter 10 because here's, here's what He told His disciples. You start serving me and you, it's going to be tough sometimes. You're going to want to quit. You're going to get discouraged. Boy, how many times have I seen people in church or serving somewhere, well, somebody hurt my feelings. I guess I just won't do that anymore. Okay? Go ahead and get prepared for it. If you're going to be a true follower of Christ, sometimes you'll have some tribulation on the way. But God will make it up to you in the end. There's the fifth factor. Don't fear men. Fear God. That's why we are supposed to serve Him. This Met series, although it is encouragement, it also is a thing where God is saying, look, one of these days I'm going to call you into account whether you are serving me. That's a good kind of fear. Now, here's where I want to uh, wrap it up today. And I have no idea how long this sermon will last. You know, I've got just a few notes, so we may be done in 20 minutes. Or, as you know me, we may take up the full rest of the time. Okay? Now, in time to get out to vetoes. Okay? All righty. And we want to talk about now the discipleship factor. So look in your bulletin. Look in your bulletin. And let's look at Matthew 10, 32 32-39. He's about to talk with them about what it means to be a disciple of His. He defines it. Matthew 10, 32-39. If anyone acknowledges Me publicly here on earth, I will openly acknowledge that person before My Father in heaven. But if anyone denies me here on earth, I will deny that person before my Father in heaven. That means you need to profess your faith and then you need to live so openly as a Christian, everybody knows you're a Christian. I've been around some Christians, didn't even know they were Christians. Didn't act like Christians. Didn't live a life like Christians. You ought to be so living close to God that everybody can tell you're a Christian. Openly confess Him, not only with your mouth, but your life. Look at verse 34. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. No, I came to bring a sword. 
You know, some people when they talk about Jesus, they're like, oh, I love Jesus. Boy, I just love the sweet old, I just love the sweet old Jesus. Guys, I just love the sweet old Jesus. And New Testament, he was such a loving man. I'm telling you, that same Jesus one time went into the temple and got ticked off and took a cord like that and started turning over the tables and whipping. Listen, sometimes, yes, Jesus is love, but he's also a God who's angry at sin. And he's angry at our disobedience. And sometimes when you follow the Lord, He will divide people. I posted something this week and I got a comment from a pastor. I was really disappointed in him. Because I thought he was a Bible-believing pastor, but apparently he wasn't. And uh, I posted a post from Adrian Rogers. You know, Adrian Rogers was the Moses of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm serious. He led our people out of liberalism... Back to the Bible, okay? And so this guy just started lighting into me, (laughs) the tribulation factor. He started lighting into me and said, you worship Adrian Rogers and you come from a fundamentalist background. And and I like what someone said, the word fundamental means no fun, a lot of damn, and not much mental. You know, I don't like to be called a fundamentalist. I don't like, you scared me to death. Uh, (laughs) I don't like to be called a fundamentalist. I like to be called an evangelical, Bible-believing, conservative preacher. And so, um, anyway, um, he said, Adrian Rogers destroyed the Southern Baptist Convention because we used to have a lot of Southern Baptists, but there were a good percentage of them, 10, 20%, who didn't believe the Bible. I mean, they believed there were errors in the Bible. And then when Adrian Rogers became the first conservative president in a long time to be president of Southern Baptist Convention, and then what followed behind him was a string of conservative presidents, and all those moderates and liberals who were in charge of the whole thing began to fade away, and they began to leave, and they started their own little side denomination called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. You ever heard of an oxymoron? The Cooperative Baptist Convention, they were anything but cooperative. So they began, listen to this. Jesus took a sword and cut them off. Jesus said, I've not come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to bring a sword. And sometimes I will separate people. He uh, he said in verse 35, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I kind of crack up at the last one. It's easy to separate a daughter-in-law from a mother-in-law, isn't it? (laughs) All right. Um, Look what he says in verse 36. Your enemies will be right in your own household. See, sometimes if you follow the Lord... You're going to have it's going to make enemies in your own house. Think about some of these Muslim people who convert to Christianity. Man, I'm telling you, they sometimes have a death threat from their dad or their mother or their brothers and sisters. They kick them out of the house at least. At the worst, they want them killed. Now, and that can even happen to us as Christians in the United States. Usually it's not some death threat, but they, 
Your own family can abandon you. Your own friends can abandon you. They don't want to have nothing to do with you. One of my best friends in college when I was away from the Lord, I mean, we were tight. We hung out all the time. And when I got right to the Lord, I went to his house. And I, I said, Robert, his name was Robert. And I, I, I said, Robert, I just want to tell you, man, I, Jesus got a hold of me and I've given my life fully, totally to him. And here's what he said. Well, that's, that's all right, man, but just don't be one of those religious nuts. Separation. From that point on, we had to go on two separate ways. My best friend growing up, we were like brothers from the fourth grade until I rededicated my life. Because he was going one way and I was going another way. Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but sometimes... A sword. And that's what it means to be a disciple. Count the cost. Now, then he says in verse 37, If you love father and mother more than me, that's a comparison statement. You're still supposed to love your father and mother. But if you love your father more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. And so what that is saying is this. Your love for Jesus is supposed to be so high above your mother, your father, your family, your friends. It's got to be way up here. Is that what Jesus is to you? Is He way up high where you're loving Him more than anything else? If you're, He's just right there, you're not doing it. If you love father and mother more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Now, He's not talking about here about sonship. He's not talking about salvation. When He says you're not worthy of me, He's not saying, well, who ain't worthy enough to go to heaven? Because he loves his family more than me. No, he's talking about discipleship here. And the way that I understand that verse when he says you're not worthy of me is this. How can you claim that you're a follower of mine if you're not going to live for me? Don't even mention my name. If you're just lukewarm in the Christian life, you're not worthy to bear my name is what he's saying here. It has nothing to do with your eternal life. Sometimes parents will say this to their kids. Let me just pull out the Hawkins name. And uh, if my son, I don't ever remember doing this much, I can't even remember doing it, but let's just say this to him. If he did something... I, you didn't know he wouldn't, shouldn't have done it. And I said, Jeff, I mean, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, Jay, that's not the way Hawkins do it. He's still my son, but you ain't acting like a Hawkins. Same thing Jesus said, you're still my child, but you ain't acting like one of my disciples. Act like the name Jesus says. And then he says this in verse 38, if you refuse to take up your cross... That is, you die to yourself, your life. 
and follow me. You are not worthy of being mine. Then he says in verse 39, If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give it up for me, you'll find it. Now let me tell you a few things about what it means to be a disciple. All those principles come from this passage. First, if you're going to be a disciple, you must learn. You must learn. Jesus had talked earlier about students and teachers. And you must be, once you get saved, and once you take up the mantle of discipleship, what God has all called all of us to do, you must set your mind to be a learner. You know what the word, uh, this, uh, another word that comes from the word disciple is? Discipline. It takes discipline to be a learner. It takes discipline. There, sometimes we think of discipline as something, you know, man, I don't want to come to church. It's discipline in the church. Guess what? It takes discipline to get up every Sunday morning and get to church. It takes discipline to read your Bible every day. It takes discipline to obey God. It takes discipline in your mind to say, I'm going to share with other people. You must be a disciplined learner. If you're going to serve Christ and improve your serve, you must be constantly learning. Listen to, you can jot this down on the side, this verse, Romans 12, 2. Paul said, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You read this every day, you start obeying it, and God will change the way you think about your life. And you'll become a disciple. You must learn. The Bible says we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Rightly dividing the Word. You know what that means? That means not just Sunday school teachers, not just preachers. You're to be a student of the Word. You teach yourself and the Word study do you know when I was in seminary, I had to do a Greek word study on one word. We were only given one word in Greek. And we had to write, listen to this, a 15-page paper on one Greek word. What a blessing. What an absolute blessing that was. Somehow I was able to do it. And that word, listen to this, this crazy sounding word was spudadzo. Spudadzo. I remember it well. And you know where that word is? It's the word here, study. That's the word, study to show yourself approved unto God. You know what spudadzo means in some translations? Tra uh, translate it, that's King James. Some translations translate it this way, and really it's the most accurate translation. Be diligent. Be fully committed. Give it all you've got to be a student of the Word of God. Everybody here like that? You're diligent to study God's Word. You will never improve your serve unless you start being a disciplined learner. That's a disciple. The word disciple means learner. Jesus said, blessed are you 
who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, not just physical food, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Can I tell you the word that comes out of the mouth of God? Here it is, right here. Every word of it. Eat it. Commit yourself fully to it. You must learn. Then, here's another one. You must leave. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must leave some things. Look what it says here in verse 32 through 33 and 38 through 39. I put it together for you. If anyone acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will acknowledge that person before my Father in heaven. But if anyone denies me here on the earth, that means you're not following me, you've not left what you're supposed to leave, I will deny that person before my Father in heaven. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your, your life for me, you will find it. John MacArthur said this, a, detru- a true disciple is willing to openly identify with Christ wherever he is. Whether he be with fellowship of other believers, a group of serious inquirers, or a hostile crowd of unbelievers. When I rededicated my life, God gave me such a hunger for His Word. I would read the Bible four hours a day. Now, I think God gave me extra grace because you know what He wanted me to do? He knew He was about to call me to preach in six months, and He wanted me to have a crash course in the Bible as soon as He could get me ready. (laughs) So He gave me a hunger to read the Bible four hours a day. And I worked at that time. I was not going to Bible college. I worked at Honda in my hometown, and it was the distribution center for the entire southeast. It was as big as six football fields, if not more. Huge. And there was this one guy there who was a blasphemer. I mean, he was an atheist, and he didn't like Christians one bit. And there were other guys there, there were partiers and drinkers and stuff like that, of which I used to be before then. And now I'm there living a disciple's life. And they could tell it. And uh, during the break, we had a a break time at 10 o'clock every morning. That's when I first began to wake up, Robert. I was walking around asleep till then, but I went there break time and boom, 10 o'clock, my little circadian, circadian or circadian, river, not circadian, (laughs) Uh, macadamia nut (laughs) my circadian rhythm clicked up and so I would sit there during break and you know what I had? I had little Gideon's New Testament Robert and I opened it up and I read it for my survival in that hostile environment and one day that guy came in that atheist blasphemer he came in there and he grabbed my New Testament and he held it up and he began to mock preaching But this is what's funny. God has a sense of humor. Steve, he opened it up, that passage. It says, in the last days, people will be haters of God and markers. He's reading that and then... (laughs) You know, you've got to learn, listen, to leave your reputation behind, your life of living independently of God behind, your ambitions, you've got to leave it behind. Listen to what Michael Card said. You've heard this psalm, but I want you to listen to the words. 
It's called the things we leave behind. Listen to what he said. There sits Simon, that's Peter. There sits Simon, so foolishly wise, proudly his tending his nets. Then Jesus calls and the boats drift away. All that he owns he forgets. More than the nets he abandoned that day. He found that his pride was soon drifting away. And it's hard to imagine the freedom we'd find from the things we leave behind. Matthew was mindful of taking the task, pressing the people to pay. Hearing the call, he responded in faith, followed the light and the way. Leaving the people so puzzled he found. The greed in his heart was no longer around. And it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. And here's kind of the bridge. Every heart needs to be set free from possessions that hold it so tight. Because freedom's not found in the things that we own. It's the power to do what is right. With Jesus, our only possession, giving becomes our delight. We can't imagine the things we find, the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. Jesus has laid... um, Because when we say no, oh, here it is. We show a love for the world in our lives by worshiping goods we possess. Jesus has laid all our treasures aside. Love God above all the rest. Because when we say no, we leave the things of this world. We open our hearts to the love of the Lord. And it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. If you're going to follow Jesus, there's some things you're going to have to leave behind. Then you must love. That's what a discipleship does. D- disciple does. He loves. Look at Matthew 10, 37. If you love Father more, Mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. What is the greatest commandment God ever gave? To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Here's the next thing, and I think we're going to be able to finish it all up today. You must live. You see, you can live your life the way you want to, or you can die. And let Jesus live his life. You must live his resurrected life. Look what it says here in Matthew 10, 39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give it up for me, you'll find it. You'll find real life. The life Jesus wants you to live. Warren Wiersbe said this, This passage, if you cling to life, you'll lose it. But if you give it up for me, you'll find it. He says this, It presents us with only two alternatives. There's only two alternatives for you to live your life. Here's what he said. Spare your life. I'll do it myself. Or sacrifice your life for Him. There is no middle ground. If we protect our own interests, we will be losers. But if we die to self and live for His interest, we will be winners. Last thing. The reward factor. Because you're like, my goodness. (laughs) That's some pretty stuff tough stuff right there. But guess what will happen? That will make it all worth it. 
There's a song that says it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Look at the passage, Matthew 10, 40-42. Anyone who welcomes you is welcoming me, and if anyone who welcomes me is welcome, welcoming the Father who sent me. Now, get your pens out here because I want you to circle a couple of words. If you welcome a prophet as one who speaks for God, you'll receive the same circle of the word reward a prophet gets. And if you welcome good and godly people because of their godliness, you'll receive a reward, circle it, like theirs. And if you even give a cup of cold water to a great preacher, now he says, to even the very least of my followers, you'll surely be rewarded, circle the word. Hey, listen, if you start improving your serve, God will give you rewards. If you serve, God will give you rewards. But if you serve more and better and improve your serve, God will give you even more rewards. Hey, God keeps good records. Gail knows I lose things, right, Gail? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I lose everything but my cell phone, okay? I lose everything, okay? And sometimes I'm like, did I write that down? Did I write that down? I lose stuff all the time. God keeps perfect records of everything you've done. And one day, he'll open that up, and he'll say, not, he's not talking about heaven here. He'll say, oh man, here's your rewards for all you did, the reward factor. Let me close it out with a story about uh, this. There's our points. We've got to finish this up. See that guy there? Young, handsome fella. His name was Jim Elliott. He went down when he was young. I think he was 28. He went down to Ecuador to be a missionary with his wife. And he went into one of the most remote tribes, dangerous tribes in Ecuador. Totally unreached. And he and some companions went down there. And when they got there, those Ecuadorian primitives speared them to death. 28-year-old missionary, prepared in seminary, did all these things to get there, and on his first mission assignment, within just a few minutes of getting there, they killed him. Here's what he said soon before he died. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let me tell you something interesting. I thought that was very, very interesting. Decades had passed, and during those decades, the one who threw that spear at Jim Elliott got saved. And here's a picture of him right there. And you know who he's standing next to? Jim Elliott's son. Isn't that something? And most of that tribe got saved. And only what's done for Christ, only, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so here's how I wrap it all up. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, don't quit, immovable in this age, Always, look at that word, abounding in the work of the Lord. 
knowing that in the Lord your neighbor, labor, your service is not in vain. Let's bow for a word of prayer.